This morning, John chapter 8, starting at verse 3, before we read the scripture, I want to give you some background on this series called Portraits of Forgiveness. Now, today's the last message in this series, Portraits of Forgiveness. You can see the paintings uh, that we have on stage. This is uh, King David and Mephibosheth. What we've been saying to you is, is that God makes beautiful things uh, from, from bad things that happen in life, and normally that happens through forgiveness. So we see King David welcoming Mephibosheth, who was a crippled, who was part of a rival family to King David's for 20 years. But because of forgiveness now, he's invited to share at the king's table for the rest of his life. That's what forgiveness does. Uh, And then we talked about Joseph. His brothers sold him into slavery. His brothers uh, wanted evil for him because of his passion and his dreams and his naivety. And uh, his brothers now are welcomed back into Egypt and into relationship with Joseph because of forgiveness. Last week we talked about Naomi. Naomi is a woman who went through some really bad things in life and even changed her name. She said, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. And, and the picture here is when she stopped blaming God, when she in a sense forgave God, then what we see at her feet are these grieving clothes. She threw off her grieving clothes and emerged in life and wholeness and joy and forgiveness. And so today we'll continue that series. Now, a few weeks ago, I asked you to write down the name of a sin that you wanted God to forgive you for. And we took all those scraps of paper and we basically made these canvases out of them. Because what we're trying to say to you in every way we can is that God will take even the things in your life that are bad. Even the things that are harmful, even the things that are bitter, even the things that you caused, even the things that people did to you. If you will surrender them to God, He will make something beautiful from them. He doesn't cause all of that stuff, but He will make something beautiful out of it. Look, it it would have happened whether you followed God or not. But now let God do something with it. And so Hannah's been joining us every Sunday morning uh, for this series, painting these pictures And today she's painting the final portrait. So next week she won't know what to do with herself when she just comes to church. She'll have no idea. But uh, how many of you have appreciated uh, her sharing her gifting with us? We really appreciate you, Hannah. Appreciate you glorifying God with your gifts. So today, before we look at the portrait, what I want to do is to try to imagine uh, what this woman in the picture we're painting today could have felt. Uh, imagine this morning, uh, you, you and I in life, dragging around this big, heavy bag. Just, just dragging this thing around everywhere you go. You imagine if you walked in this morning and I said, here, hold this, don't let it touch the ground, and take it with you everywhere you go. Here you are at lunch. <laughs> imagine driving. Can you imagine how tired and how weary and how discouraged you would get over time if you drug this bag with you everywhere you went. Now, you see it, but nobody else sees it. It's it's a heavy bag that you carry everywhere you go. It's a bag you carry with you to work. It's a bag you carry with you to school. It's a bag you carry with you to the mall. It's 
it's the bag that you dragged maybe to the altar the day that you got married and the bag that you drug, the heavy weight that you drug with you through your honeymoon and your newlywed years and your marriage. It's a heavy burden that you drag around that maybe your children know it's there but they can't see it. Maybe your spouse knows it's there but doesn't know what to do about it. It's a heavy bag that you drug in with you this morning. It's a weight that never seems to let up. It just stays on you no matter what you do. And maybe like some of you, the person in our portrait of forgiveness is dragging this heavy bag around. Now let's see what's in the bag. This bag is filled with weight. Rocks. This first stone might have hit you as a child was thrown at you for the first time by one of your parents and said, you're no good for anything and you'll never amount to, you'll never amount to anything good. Maybe when you're at school, this bag is filled with another rock that hit you when a bully at school said, who do you think you are? Come over here and let me show you what your life's going to be like at school. Let me show you who you really are. Maybe this was the rock that was thrown at you the first time When you were a child, you endured some kind of secret abuse. A family member, somebody you trusted, somebody close to you said, don't ever tell. Don't ever tell. If you ever tell, I'll hurt you. There's another rock in the bag. Maybe this morning it's a... uh, this, This woman experienced a rock thrown at her. When she lost her innocence as a teenager, somebody pressured her and she gave in. And oh, the condemnation and the embarrassment and the shame. If anybody ever knew what I really did, if they ever knew what I did. And then maybe in this young lady's life that we see in the story this morning, maybe she lost her innocence and then maybe she began to live in a cycle of impurity and begin to carry the weight around, and maybe now she's taking somebody else's innocence. And now she lives with the shame and the condemnation that what somebody did to me, now I've done to them. And then there's the shame and the condemnation that comes. When you begin to live in the reality that you have embraced a cycle And in that cycle, you realize you're stuck. And you say to yourself, I'll never do this again. I'll never do it again. And you do it again. And then you say, no, this this time I mean it. I'll never do it again. And you do it again. No, no, something bad happens. You cross the line. You almost lose your family. You almost lose your job. And you say, this time I'll never do it again. And you do it again. And that rock comes crashing into the back of your head and says, See, never do it again. You're stuck. You're stuck and you'll never, never, never get out. And then maybe there's the rock that this lady experienced when she began to be known as the girl in town that was easy. Now these rocks of condemnation are coming closer. And now they're beginning to set in on her identity. On her identity. That's who you are. It's not what you did. Oh, no, no, no. 
This is who you are. Carry this around. And that rock just keeps hitting her over and over. And then there's another one that says, you know what, by the way, you deserve this. Carry that. After what you've done, you deserve it. And then every morning when she wakes up and she looks in the mirror, do you know what she sees? Another rock knocking the breath out of her saying, this is who you are. This is your, this is your identity. And another rock that replays those events in her mind over and over. And she can see herself and picture herself. Why did I do it? Why did I let that person do that to me? Why did I become what I am? A person of ridicule and shame. And it just keeps adding up over and over and over. And now this great big rock at the end is not just a reminder of what you did. This rock of condemnation says... This is who you are. This is who you are. This must be what this woman experienced in the story we'll look at this morning. These are rocks of condemnation and shame and accusation. Now let's look at the story together. John chapter 8. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and, and said to Jesus... Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Watch this. Not her, him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. We don't know her name. And we have no idea who she was. Her story was a story of abuse and shame and grace. When we met her, she's already standing in a circle of religious leaders who are playing the, the lawyer, the judge, and the jury. These men are self-appointed custodians of morality. Jesus is sitting on the ground teaching when they interrupt and they shove her right in his face when the accusation is blurted out. This woman was caught in adultery. Not just adultery. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the arms. In the moment. In the heat. In the passion. Those words alone make everybody around cringe. In the act. Caught. In an instant, she is uh, yanked away from private passion to public spectacle. The religious leaders are really excited about this occasion. They don't care about the woman. They don't care about morality. What they care about is catching Jesus in a trap. Surely this will do it. This woman is for sure guilty. There's no, there's no getting out of this one. Just shove her in Jesus' face and watch him squirm. This is going to be good. She probably stood there pulling at a thin robe trying to cover her own nakedness. 
But nothing could cover up her guilt or shame. From that very moment, she would forever be remembered as the adulterous woman. The Pharisees are quick to point out the law. Boy, that's their go-to. The law of Moses says women who act this way should be stoned to death. What do you say about that, Jesus? I mean, the woman did sin, but what the Pharisees did was worse. Snatched her up like a rag doll, hoping to trap Jesus between some moral code and this woman's death. And, and I've always wondered when I read this story, whatever happened to the man? Where did he go? You ever thought about that? I mean, she was caught in the act. Well, she's not in the act by herself. Where's the guy that was in the act? How did he manage to, to get away? How did he manage to, to not be caught? I mean, a, adultery is when someone has sex with someone other than their spouse, so it's very possible this guy was married. Where's his wife? Where is he? Nothing's ever said about that. But the Pharisees didn't care about any of that. What was important to them was a trap. This woman's been caught, but she's not the catch. She's only the bait. Still, her life's over. It won't change that. She can't help but see the members of an all-male jury clutching at these stones, eagerly waiting for Jesus to give the final command so they can execute her brutally. She's helpless. She's defenseless. And worse than that, she's guilty. Like the rocks in this heavy bag that we carry around through life, she'd been verbally hit by those stones of shame and condemnation all her life, but this time they were going to kill her. They thought they'd trap Jesus. He would, he would have let them carry out the sentence and fulfill the law and prove that he was just like them. That's what they wanted. They wanted Jesus to agree with them. That would validate them. It would validate their legalism. But Jesus knew their hearts were evil. He knew that they didn't care about God. They didn't care about God's word. They didn't care about this woman. And they didn't care about morality. So he simply began drawing in the dirt. Doodling on the ground. No one knows for sure what he wrote. I've heard some interesting theories. Some people think that he wrote in the ground the names of the mistresses of some of the Pharisees. That would have been interesting, wouldn't it? You want to go there? Okay, come here. How about this? What about her? That would have been interesting, wouldn't it? Some people say that uh, the law of Moses said that you're required to have two witnesses to this act. And maybe he wrote part of the law that hinted at the fact that they probably didn't have two witnesses. Some people say that... Um, he wrote, the, he wrote in the sand who was the man that was caught with her. Or where's the man that was caught with her. Incidentally, in Leviticus, the Bible tells us that the man falls under the same punishment that the woman does. So he should have been there to be stoned to death too. Whatever it was that scared him enough, he then said, let any one of you who's without sin be the first person to step up here and throw a stone at her. Now, Jesus wasn't excusing sin. He wasn't nullifying the law. He was just exposing the fact that these men had no right to execute it. They'd been caught red-handed, disobeying the same law of Moses they were trying to uphold. That's why they left. Did you notice in the story, they left oldest to youngest? Because the old guy said, yeah, he got us. The old guys got it. The young ones were going to hang in there for a while. 
But the older one said, uh, our goose is cooked. This one's done. They weren't leaving because they thought Jesus had shown some great moral superiority. They left because he beat them at their own game. Checkmate. This one's over. But why? Here's the question. Why did Jesus win the game? What did Jesus want to get out of it? Was he wanting to embarrass the religious leaders? Did he want to show them up? Did he want to reveal his own brilliance? No, he wanted to save her. They were gone, but the truth was she was still guilty. Whether they threw the rocks or not, it would never change the fact that she was guilty and she knew it. And so did Jesus. And probably guilty many times. And the shame she carried acted as a cycle that wouldn't allow her to be anything but what she was. The jury was gone, but the judge was still there. Jesus had every right as the Son of God to walk over and pick up a rock and stone her to death. He had every right. But if he would have exercised that right, he would have missed the work of the Father. You know what one of the greatest works of the Father is? Creation. New beginning. Corinthians says, all, if any man be in Christ, all old things are passed away. All things have become new. New birth, new hope, change. So Jesus says to her, where are your accusers at? Do they not judge you guilty? No, Lord, they're gone, she said. Listen to this phrase. This is the word for the day. Then Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. I wonder if she had ever heard a man say that in her life. I wonder if she'd ever heard it. I wonder if her dad ever said it. I wonder if the the teenager who took her virginity ever said it. I wonder if the men who used her ever said it. Surely the religious leaders never said it. I don't condemn you. Condemnation works poison to the soul. Poisons us. It's toxic. Neither do I condemn you. Max Lucado wrote about this occasion and he said this, If you ever wondered how God reacts when you fail, frame these words of Jesus and hang them on the wall. Read them, ponder them, drink from them. Stand below them and let them wash over your soul. Or better still, invite Jesus into the dark canyon of your shame. Invite Him to journey with you. Let Him stand beside you as you retell the darkest nights of your soul. And then listen. Listen carefully when he says, neither do I condemn you. It's like Jesus gives us the same opportunity. He gave this woman whose name we don't even know, who was guilty. If he could remove her guilt, then he could also remove her shame. And he knew that when guilt and shame are gone, you have a new beginning. Now I want to, just for the next couple minutes, look at how shame works. Just give you a simple way of how shame works. I I think we are quickly moving from a culture in America that is guilt-based to shame-based. Don't, whatever you do, don't, don't embarrass anyone. Don't, shame is a big sensitive deal and there's a reason for that. So let's look at how shame works. It's usually a result of sin and guilt. It's always a result of somebody's sin and guilt. Either sin that you did or sin that somebody did to you. 
It bonds you, it enslaves you, it restricts you, it limits you, it robs you the capacity to do right. It forces you into cycles of brokenness like we talked about where you say, I'll never do this again, I'll never do this again, I'll never do this again, and you do it again. The first stage of shame starts as a feeling because of something we've experienced. Either someone did something wrong to us or we did something wrong and now all of a sudden shame has come on us. Do you remember when Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden and they ate from the fruit? What's the first thing they did? Hid. Why did they hide? Shame. Shame, shame, shame. Shame on you. Shame on you. And they went and they hid. And that embarrassment, that shame, clothed them and began to introduce darkness into their soul. And the same thing happens. We, it's a feeling that we have when we've experienced something. Here's the second stage. We quickly validate the feelings with bad thoughts and lies. Like this. I'm not good enough. That's what we start to say. I'm not good enough. I'm not loved. It's not that I've done something wrong. It's that I am something wrong. Something's wrong with me. I've I've had people tell me that for 20 years in ministry. I've had people say to me, you don't understand. It's not like that. For me, it's different. That's good for you, but it's not that way for me. I've over and over, and we tell ourselves the same terrible and stupid lies that the enemy has been speaking since the Garden of Eden. You're different. And then stage three, the feelings and thoughts have now worked their way out of our life and start to shape our behavior and our lifestyle. We stop, uh, we, we withdraw, and worst of all, we stop believing God and we stop accepting grace because we no longer think we're a candidate for it. And if you've ever dealt with habitual sin in your life, if you've ever dealt with habitual failure, if you've ever dealt with that cycle, you understand exactly what I mean. I'm no longer a candidate. I don't, I've heard it. I don't even know if God can forgive me anymore. Over and over and over. And the cycle goes on and on and on and on. And that begins to shape our understanding of our identity. Now, how do you overcome shame? Well, we have to replace the old thoughts with God's thoughts. We, uh, Romans 12.1 Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed from within by what? A new way of thinking. Who's new thinking? God's new thinking. I have to begin to believe God's thinking for myself. Look, uh, uh, six months ago, I didn't know why God said this to me, but he said it to me, and I didn't know. And, as, and just as I was getting ready for this Sunday, and I was understanding what the Holy Spirit's doing in our church and in our life, flowing straight from Easter through this forgiveness series, it dawned on me, I now understand. Six months ago, I felt God put on my heart, I want you to study the book of Ephesians this summer, and I didn't understand it. Starting the first Sunday of June, we're going to do a series this summer on the book of Ephesians. So I want to encourage you, start studying it. Maybe you want to let that be your Bible reading time for the summer. The book of Ephesians is jam-packed. And you know what the book of Ephesians is about? Identity formation. It's about understanding who you are in Christ. And it is jam-packed with power. Who you are in Christ. So let me just give you a little preview. What are the kind of thoughts 
that I need to replace with the old bad thoughts. These thoughts that will build my faith and allow me to see myself the way God sees me. What does God say? He says, I am, lo- I am loved by God. I am forgiven by God for my past and my future. I am redeemed. We sang the song this morning. What does redemption mean? I am good in the eyes of God. I am created in the image of God. I am dead to sin and shame, and I am alive to God. I'm able to fulfill God's purpose for my life. I don't have to shrink away from living anymore. He's renewing my mind every day. I am a new creation. Anybody getting this this morning? I'm a new creation. Something's happened. Something is happening. I don't have to settle for. I don't have to settle for this. Something new is happening inside me. I heard a story of a little boy who was shooting rocks out of a slingshot. I got a couple of those boys that shoot rocks at stuff. And his grandmother's little pet duck was cutting across the farm. And just out of a flash of impulse, he decided, wouldn't it be cool to shoot the duck? I mean, what are the chances he'd hit it? What could go wrong? He pulled back, pow, shot that duck in the head and killed him. Didn't know what to do, so he went over and hit him in the woodpile. And just as he was slipping that little duck's dead body down in the woodpile, his sister Sally saw him. She said, what are you doing? What are you doing? Well, I, I, I don't know. And so she made this kind of unspoken agreement with him that if you don't do what I say, I'm going to tell Grandma you killed her duck. So they're sitting at the dinner table, and they ate dinner, and it's time to do dishes, and it's Johnny's turn to do dishes. And she said, uh, uh, or, it's, or it's Sally's turn to do dishes. Grandma says, Sally, why don't you do the dishes? You're turning on. She said, you know, Johnny told me he'd like to do them instead. And she said, remember the duck. So he got up and did the dishes. And then every now and then, Johnny would get out of line, and Sally would cut her mischievous eyes at him and say, remember the duck cut her eyes, remember the duck. It's time to do laundry, remember the duck. Clean your room, duck. Your turn to cut the grass, duck. Finally, Johnny got so fed up with this, he figured it was worse to face grandma than it was to do chores for Sally anymore. So he went to his grandmother and he said, I got something to tell you. He started to cry. He said, I'm so sorry, I... I killed your favorite little duck, and I'm sorry, and I, I, I don't know why I did it. I didn't mean to do it. It just happened, and I'm so sorry, and I, I hate that I did it. His grandma sort of hugged him up and took him close, and she said, I know. She said, I saw the whole thing. <laughs> she said, I saw the whole thing. I was standing at the window when you did it. I saw you hide it in the woodpile. She said, but I love you and I forgave you. I was just wondering how long you were going to let Sally make a slave out of you. Pretty good medicine, isn't it? How long will you let the enemy make a slave out of you? Through secrets and condemnation and shame. How long will you allow the enemy to hold you back from what God made you to be? How long? This is how the enemy works. Voices of condemnation. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't care about me. 
He, just like the Pharisees, he's beating you into submission, tempting us, trapping us to, so that we might carry out his plan. Do the dishes, do the laundry, do my work, do this, spread evil, gossip, mess people's life up, reach for your own selfishness. You never get a break, you deserve it, take it. He doesn't care about you. He's trying to trap you into, beat you into submission that you might fulfill his plan. When we allow ourselves to be identified by our sin, by our failures, rather than by God's grace, we play right into his hands. And when we allow those condemning voices of shame to cave in on us, we just allow the enemy to win. This morning as we go to prayer, man, I, I want us to pray through some specific things. This little picture that Hannah's drawing shows Jesus kneeling down, saying something to this woman that no man had probably ever said to her in her life. Neither do I condemn you. And what you see is you see Jesus and this woman kneeling in a circle of rocks. And all the accusers are gone. This bag is a lot lighter than the one we came in with. It's a lot lighter. It's a lot easier to carry. You know what Jesus said? Take my yoke on you. My way is easy. My burden is light. You know what I find? I find that sin and shame and things that people have done to you that bruised you internally, I find it's like peeling an onion. They sort of come off a layer at a time. I don't, at least that's the way it's worked in my life. I've never had one moment that fixed everything, but I've had some moments that fixed a lot of stuff. (laughs) Does that make sense? And, and because what's happening is you, you can't be, you can't have a moment that just fixes everything because you and I need an identity change. And even when that identity might change in a moment, we don't know how to live it out in a moment. We have to, we might have to study Ephesians a while to figure that out. To, to draw off the well of a new identity. It takes, it takes time. And so uh, it, this morning, I was thinking that stage three of shame is where behavior starts to change. And it's funny that we usually attack this thing at the behavioral level and not at the internal level. But I'm telling you, you can attack the behavior all you want and you're going to beat your head against the wall and you'll lose most of the time. But I I was thinking about, but those behaviors, what do they grow out of? Where do they come from? They usually come from shame. They usually come from condemnation. They usually come because somebody's thrown some rocks at you somewhere or you've thrown some at yourself and you've bought into this is who I am. And when that identity changes, the behavior down the road will change. So let's just talk for a minute. There there are people in the room that struggle with alcoholism and drug dependency. 
It's probably a secret. Most of the people at church don't know it. Your spouse might not know it. I've met, I've heard testimonies of people who are closet alcoholics, functional alcoholics, drug, drug dependent. Where does that come from? It comes from the reality that you've said, this is my identity. I can't make it without this. And these rocks just keep slapping you upside the head every day of your life. Over and over and over. There, there are people in the room that struggle in a cycle of food addiction. Therapy. I'll just eat and release and eat and release and eat and release. I celebrate with food. I grieve with food. I, 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 I starve all the time. And what happens? The identity you have bought into an identity of condemnation. Shame. This is who you are. Live with it. That's what the enemy says. He doesn't care about you. He just wants you to be a puppet. He wants you to do whatever harm you can do, and he'll badger you into the corner. Look, if you read the latest statistics on pornography, out of bounds. If you read the statistics of pornography for uh, uh, regular attending church men, out of bounds. By the way... Pornography addiction for women is also on the rise. Out of bounds. There's a tsunami of of, uh, addiction coming. This is the first generation in American history that was raised on pornography. And if you don't think that changes anything, why don't you roll the clock back and try to see if if you can tell if having television changed anything. That's what that's what we're talking about. And I'm saying to you, there are people in the room, you've just kicked that same rock around so long, you wake up every morning and you get hit by it. And it just beats you in the face. Look, and I'm just, I, look I just want to pastor you this morning and say, hey, God's got a better way. I'm not, I don't condemn you. This will not be a place of condemnation. It will not. It's a place of grace. Somebody has to look inside your life and say, neither do I condemn you. You're not condemned. Jesus' name, you will be the son and daughter of God he called you to be. You will be free. You can be free. You can walk free. Smoking. Where does that come from? Most addictive cycles come from this idea that this is who I am and I can't get out. Emotional up and ups and downs. People that just battle with emotional ups and downs. Oh, I did what I was supposed to do today. I'm a good person. Oh, I didn't do good today. And, and, you, and your entire emotional bank flows up, floods up and down based on how good you did and how good. I didn't do my devotions today. Oh, I'm terrible. I missed church Sunday. Oh, 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 I'm going to die. Now, there's a few of you I wish you felt more that way. But there's some of you... Come on now, right? We're going to keep it real, aren't we? But, but there's some of you, some of you way too free. But some of you, you, you grew up that way and you can't get over that. And, and, and look, uh, the whole emotional thing. I did, I did bad today. You know, I didn't, whatever. I didn't do this or I did do that. And now I'm a wasteland. Hey, that's an emotional, addictive cycle where you're basing your identity in God on your performance, not on His. His performance is perfect. Thank God. Approval. 
Some of you just crave approval and you will act out, act in, show up, do the thing. You will do whatever it takes to gain approval because you haven't yet found your identity in Jesus. Some of you may be on your third and fourth marriage and you're wondering, why can't I get this right? Because there's something in your identity that is not yet settled. That's where it comes from. All of life flows from your identity in Christ. And so I just want to say to me and everybody, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Condemnation never makes a child of God. Condemnation makes a child of the enemy. Neither do I condemn you. Would you stand with me this morning? And I, I want to ask our prayer team to come. And look, this is, this is just one of those charged moments where I believe God wants to do a supernatural work. And I'm, we're, we're, I'm not going to hold you long. I'll let you out in about, about three minutes. Okay? But I, today's a day of freedom. And I look, there, there's a dozen things I didn't mention. Right? There's just, it's just stuff. There's no pet sin or pet problem. That's not the issue. That's the symptom out here. The issue is the identity in here. Who are you in Jesus? Boy, it takes a while to peel the onion. I, I look, I know, I've, I've lived points in my life caught in habitual sin. And, and, and when I look back, and I went through years of struggle, and, I, and I'll go back, I realize what the core issue was. It's how I saw myself. That's, how, that's who I thought I was. And it was only when I... It was only when I allowed a new way of thinking to take root and plant and grow up inside me that I could see myself as who God saw me. So there's no... That's the deal. Every eye closed. Intercessors pray. Here's all I want to do. This is not an end. It is a, maybe a beginning. Maybe a continuation. But you're here today. I'm saying to you, I, I'm making a commitment to you. This will not be a house of shame. It will not. But neither will it be a place where, where we will pat you on the back and tell you you're okay, continue to hide behind your shame. No, 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 no. Don't do that. That's a mistake. Come out. Come out from behind there. And let's be free today. And so there's no judgment. Here's, in fact, here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to do. The worship team's going to sing. And I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to, here, I'm going to dismiss you. But for those of you in the room who say, I want to take a step today. I want to take a step. Then I want you, as everybody leaves, I want you to move to somebody in prayer. I let everybody go, but I want you to linger behind. I want you to pray. And I want to encourage you. Don't miss the opportunity. Don't miss the moment. Don't say to yourself, it's okay, I'll fix it later, whatever. Don't do that. 
And you, you may have been on this journey for 20 years and you got about eight, eight layers of the onion peeled. Maybe it's time for the ninth one. Maybe it's just time. With every eye closed, if you say today in your heart, I need God's grace. I need those words. Neither do I condemn you. I need God to work in me. And I need to better understand my identity in Him. If, would you just lift your hand and say, that's me. We're not attaching anything to it. Just lift your hand. Come on, just lift your hand. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you out. Just lift your hand. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Lord, in Jesus' name, I pray today as we come to grace that your power would deliver. Your power would free. Your power would allow the grace of God to flow through this place that we might know who we are in you. In Jesus' mighty name. The worship team's going to begin to sing.